available at brownpapertickets.com and supportive bookstores. More info on kpfa.org. For that audacious intellectual luminary, Richard Dawkins, October 6th. KPFA Berkeley 94.1, KPFB Berkeley 89.3, KFCF Fresno 88.1, online at kpfa.org. It's 3 o'clock. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light, light them up boys, there's your picture, drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is August the 25th, 2015. I am looking forward to that. Uh, Dawkins Lecture. Ah, yes. The God Delusion is a book that makes me feel like uh, going back in a classroom, you know, <laughs> aiming it over my head. Ah, God. The, the mega metaphor. Yes. I remember students asking me, did I believe, did I believe in God? And I said, well, kids, uh, I believe in metaphor. I didn't get very far with that anyway. This week, I heard Toni Morrison, speaking of gods, she was being interviewed on the other public radio station. Now, Toni Morrison is a literary saint in my world, uh, I guess the greatest living American novelist. Um, I don't like that, that thing about the great ones and the other ones and all that. Uh, uh, being a, a major minor novelist myself. <laughs> anyway, Toni Morrison, uh, is the first African American woman to win a Nobel Prize. That was back in 1993. Uh, She's won all the prizes and got all the the Freedom Award from the president and all that. But she's uh, in her middle to late 80s now. Her life is, is difficult. She used the word depression during the interview. And I thought, damn it, you know, how is it that the literary life is not always cheerful? I think of Mark Twain at the end there. He was uh, quite a gloomy Gus. I have a note here that says, If you start getting gloomy, Jennifer, you are to jump into uh, something funny. I put it here. I put my little book about the uh, the cockroach and the cat. I put it right here. That's to, uh, to uh, save me if I decide to go off the... the uh, the deep end and start grousing. It's an old Irish tradition, but I've sworn off hand-wringing, no more venting, no more ranting. Anyway, Toni Morrison, uh, she said 
that when she went to college, right, she was an English major. And then she said she found the theater department. I love it. She said she discovered that they, the people in the drama department, they had a different approach to literature. Right. Yes. Hmm. I remember the uh, excitement of dramatic literature when I was, uh, oh, so, so young. Uh, plays, plays. They were just, just my absolute favorite. Now, you know how it is, uh, the instructors in the English departments, uh, the way they deal with language, with word work, you know, uh, they, they just, they can't help it, you know. I think maybe, uh, they've spent too much time, what is it, uh, the midnight oil, yes, yeah, someone said, uh, the smell of the lamp, someone said, it means that you stayed up too late and, studied too hard, I thought of the literature uh, I grew up with as kind of, you know, the history of love, yes, uh, the history of emotions, all emotions, as emotions, you know, they evolve over time, but human nature is always a constant, and you remember uh, back in, oh, 15th, 16th century, they started to write diaries and then autobiographies and then novels. And novels actually can be personal, can be emotional. Uh, they certainly uh, are, for me, the best ones, you know. Uh, but before all that, uh, before all that autobiographical uh, writing... The ancient, ancient songs, those were the first. Those were kind of group, group efforts, chorus, yes, the great chorus. Pure emotions, uh, the emotions that we feel, you know, just by being, just by living, existing. And then the dance, of course, the dance came with the music, uh, from the very, very beginning, from the very, very first uh, hominoids, then the earliest religion, that was the magic created, you know, uh, performance art. They call it these days, yes, yes, performance art. They're scared to call it poetry, you know, because they don't want people to think it might be boring. Uh you know, the page and the stage is always a problem. Uh, anyway, the gods, whoever they are, let's call them uh, the fates, the spirits, uh, it all comes to life on a stage. And uh, then the people, you know, the people become part of the show. They're involved. Uh, you know, they they actually are the the... What do you call it? Not the Godhead, but the little sparks, you know. Uh, as far as I can tell, if there is a God on this earth, it is to be found somewhere in the little compartment between the right and the left brain. It's a little, little uh, neuron in there, you know. Anyway, uh, audiences, you know, they participate and they dance and they feel how it is with themselves and with each other and then there's this connection and now we call it communication anyway 
those ancient religions, uh, all that performance, uh, all that music, it, it was incantation, you know, calling to the gods, calling to whatever it is that's out there, song and dance endures forever. Uh, Gertrude Stein, long time ago, she wrote, uh, two things are always the same, the dance and war. <laughs> she got that one. She nailed it. Toni Morrison went on to say that, uh, this is in her interview on the radio, she went on to say that she kind of wanted to make a career in the theater, and she would have if she could have, but it just came about that, well, she was an editor at a publishing house for many years, and then her novels became her life work. Uh, fortunately for the world, uh, it's strange how in the middle of the 20th century, theater was so intensely literary. Toni Morrison is my age, and uh, like me, you know, she uh, she saw theater as uh, dramatic literature. Uh, when I was uh, very young, in my 20s, uh, there was a magazine called Theater Arts. There was a new play published every month. You know, you bought it and you read it. Uh, <laughs> all the cutting-edge plays, you know, all the stuff, uh, the hot stuff on Broadway. Uh, we had to read the very latest. Uh, actually, we actually had star novelists in those days as well. Gore Vidal pointed out that novelists are no longer uh, stars or, you know, they're no longer uh, celebrities. I remember, uh, well, I was going to yammer on about Norman Mailer and things he said towards the end of his life. But once again, that's just too gloomy. God bless Norman Mailer. He certainly did his best. Uh, what I used to do, going on with my uh, my reflections on the mid, mid-20th century theater, I used to read best plays. There were volumes of best plays. They filled the shelves at the library. Samuel French was the big publisher. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I found a few old Samuel French paperbacks in a bookstore the other day, and it was just so, so nostalgic for me. <laughs> the plays, you know, they were all in paperback, and you could carry them around and you know, practice before acting class. Anyway, uh, I finished up the stuff uh, I wrote. Let's see. I wrote to several playwrights then and got answers. I remember how exciting that was. And then I, I read everybody. I read Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller. And by the time I got to college, they made us read Eugene O'Neill. And I kind of liked Eugene O'Neill, sort of. Uh, uh, then I finally went back to the great plays of the past. Actually, I didn't do that till I was in college. But uh, uh, I don't know what I would have made of Agamemnon and uh, uh, all the uh, 
Roman farces when I was young. Uh, I uh, I used the old classics to compare to modern portrayals of human psychology, and I discovered, you know, that it was all the same. I remember doing Clytemnestra in the Agamemnon. You remember she was a murderess. She killed her uh, husband, Agamemnon, and then her son, Orestes, came and killed her. I usually use that instead of Oedipus Rex as the turnaround. You remember all the Freudian references to Oedipus and Electra and all those folks. But I think it was in the Agamemnon when Clytemnestra killed her good husband, the king, and uh, his mistress uh, as well. She and her lover, Aegisthus, uh, are insulted because Agamemnon had used the child... Clytemnestra's daughter, Agamemnon's daughter as well, Iphigenia, they uh, threw her onto the pyre and sacrificed her to the gods so Agamemnon could go to Troy. We still practice virgin sacrifice in all sorts of ways. Think about it. Anyway, in that uh, play... uh, The daughter of Agamemnon, Electra, she gets hold of her brother Orestes and she says, you got to go and and kill your mother because she uh, committed regicide. She killed the king. And so Orestes does it and he gets away with it. So I I use that as the turning point, the point at which uh, (laughs) killing the male, the state, the king, was a worse crime than uh, the father killing his child, that is, Iphigenia. Uh, I guess, uh, yes, the matrilineal, uh, the matrilineal world wouldn't allow Agamemnon to kill his daughter. Anyway, uh, I just had a wonderful time. Uh, studying history alongside of all these plays. Uh, I think, you know, the plays, of course, are not um, are not exact, uh, but they certainly give you a better idea of what was going on in that world than, uh, than you get from the usual boring historians. Uh, it's the best spin on history. One of my favorites was Thornton Wilder's play, Skin of Our Teeth. <laughs> yes, we did that in uh, when I was in college. They had radical staging. Skin of Our Teeth was the latest thing, you know, bare stage and all that uh, new stuff. Uh, but the story, the tale, is an everyman story, you know. It's a kind of morality play about... All of us in our many stages through history, it was, of course, a fantasy, but uh, the creationists would just love Skin of Our Teeth because, you know, there are dinosaurs running around living with the humans and that sort of thing. Once upon a time, irony was really, really our meat and drink. I don't know what's happened, but the the literal-minded... Uh, world uh, has just, what is that, fallen on our heads. Uh, 
It's impossible these days when you talk to creationists and the folks who, you know, think Darwin was uh, nuts. Uh, if you try to explain allegory or metaphor, even symbol, uh, they just look at you as if, <laughs> as if you're nuts. You know, there's so many ways that human beings can perceive reality, but uh, I guess... It comes down to the fact, and I think it is a fact, that if you use language, everything's a metaphor. Uh, I used uh, in school, my favorite was the play Camino Real or Camino Real. So many ways. It was a Tennessee Williams play. I loved it. Uh, uh, students, students did get that. There were characters from history, from myth, from legend. They're all tossed together in this kind of salad or montage, collage of all the human archetypes. All the people that we know and that we love to hate or love to love. Anyway, in Camino Real, there's the poet Byron. He's one of my favorite characters in that play. He longs to pass over the, uh, it's kind of a wall. There. He wants to pass into terra incognito, into the unknown lands, into oblivion. You remember Byron. He represents the demon lover and uh, the romantic revolutionary. And I knew lots of those folks in <laughs> in, in the 20th century. Uh Actually, uh, Byron did find the real road to romance. Uh, he went to Greece and died there fighting civil war, I think. Anyway, uh, this kind of story leads young students to, to search, you know, to go on a journey, a quest, see Joseph Campbell, you know. Find out what's out there on the Camino Real. Anyway, you know, the road of life is hard to, hard to feel under your feet. <laughs> Remember, yes, Isadora Duncan used to say, my barefoot rank is best. She said, your feet should be on the ground, literally. Emily Dickinson said that too. Anyway, the trouble is, when we walk along the cement on the prosaic path, you know, reading essays and sermons and tracts, and even novels when we listen to nothing but television pundits, you know. We get a kind of flat view. Yes, the world is flat these days. The great novels are great, were great, because they personify the pain, uh, the pleasure of individuals. If one more conservative soul says to me, I just want to be entertained, I'm going to crack up. <laughs> I said, how can you be entertained if you're not involved? Anyway, in these plays, uh, I remember the kings and queens. They became men and women. Ibsen, Henrik Ibsen, the Norwegian playwright, 19th century. He wrote a play about the drowning of a little boy. 
The little boy's name was Eof. Little Eof is the name of the play. This kid's parents did not want him. He interfered with their lives, with their uh, sexual games, although uh, they could never admit this to themselves. It was uh, their secret. It's a subjective desire. Uh, there's an old woman in the play, uh, another mythic character, uh, not exactly a witch. She senses their dark desire, and she's a helpful a helpful woman. She leads the boy to the seashore where he can play with the local boys, with the tough little urchins they may have stolen from Eof. In any case, uh, they are certainly bullies like the contemporary bully culture. Uh, Eof is a wealthy child, but He's lame. It's hard for him to play with the others. He's disabled from a fall. He fell off the table when he was only an infant, and that accident occurred when his parents had gone off to bed, and they neglected to take care of him. They went to bed to have sex, and their guilt has poisoned their marriage. Ah, the old woman, she's called the rat wife. She has the job, uh, the ordinary daily job, of destroying the rats on the docks. Pest control, you know. She decides to give the parents their darkest desire. Uh, the subtexts in this play are just terrific. Uh, it's funny because the audience had trouble getting this one. Uh, seemed to me it was glaring. Uh, Anyway, it was the first play that I was in which dramatized child abuse. Uh, you know how that is. Uh, the child abuse that so many people are concerned with today, uh, it, leads, it leads to so much, what do you call that? It's like throwing a stone into the water. It goes out in circles and waves. There's so much uh, agony in the next generation. Uh, you know, repressed memories, all that stuff comes bubbling up, causes people to uh, do unto others as was done unto them. Yes, the evil that is done... Uh, Yes, those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Anyway, Toni Morrison has tackled this theme. That's what I'm getting to. Right, she's got a play. Uh, no, a book, a book, a novel. Uh, her book is as intense today as when Ibsen's Little Eof uh, was written back in the late 19th century. Uh, I'm always so surprised when people think uh, child abuse is a new crime. You remember Charles Dickens, he wrote all about the wretched lives of children in the 19th century. And not just those who lived in poverty. You remember Dickens' famous uh, theatrical image of the two little kids hidden in the robes of Father Christmas. The little girl is poverty, the little boy is ignorance. These, Dickens wrote are the twin evils of our world. Dickens was one of those authors who uh, staged readings. He, too, was a theatrical uh, 
he actually, they say, killed himself doing, doing these readings uh, as an actor. He was over the top, they say, when he acted out the murder of Nancy. You remember the girlfriend of the evil Bill Sykes. Eh, poor Nancy. Um, Dickens was observed to get carried away. I think actually Dickens had these marital stresses, so he may have been indulging in a fantasy all his own. What I'm getting at is Toni Morrison's latest book. The title is God Help the Child. And I'm just betting that this book is a kind of finale to all her works in which we see the human pain and the tragedy of of all our lives, not just the lives of those who uh, were slaves or who have suffered uh, from exploitation. You know, there's a theatrical tradition uh, uh, that Toni Morrison uses, this theme de jour, this uh, tragic abuse of children. Now, she does this in the old theatrical tradition. She goes out on a limb and then introduces the issue of color. Now, that's a whammy. In that interview a few days ago, she explained that she wanted to separate race from color. And the way she's done this is to create a character, a mother, whose child is too dark for her. Now, (laughs) separating race from color is a tough one. It's always been a tough one. Uh, Ever since race became an excuse for bondage, but the problem is that color is not proof of race. And the other way around, uh, you know, Toni Morrison says, there is no such thing as a biological race. I used a long quote here on the air recently. I don't want to repeat it. It's Toni Morrison's quote about race being a substitute for so many other things. The main thing, of course, being class and uh, economic conditions. Anyway, in her novel, God Help the Child, this mother rejects her baby. Because the baby is dark-skinned, the mother is light-skinned, the baby is said to be midnight black, the woman's light-skinned husband rejects them both and assumes that his wife has committed adultery. Marriage is destroyed. Toni Morrison, in the interview, spoke of the Uh, familiar hierarchy within the African-American community, the one about color. I remember when I was teaching in the urban schools in Oakland long ago, late 60s, early 70s, uh, I was truly shocked. I was pretty naive. I didn't quite understand. And then when I saw the darker students bullied, uh, it was so so cruel sometimes and then uh, there was the insidious stuff like the girls offering in a friendly way you know uh, to help darker girls to lighten their skin I had to learn a lot fast I was back in uh, New York 
Let's see. That would be in the abs- the late 50s. And there were these tragic tales about Eartha Kitt. She was in a uh, show called New Faces of 1952. And I'll have to wait till next week to tell you about Eartha Kitt's trauma dealing with color. Anyway, uh, I really wish I had time to finish talking about Toni Morrison. I'm going to save it for next week. Uh, I hope I have time for it next week because we're starting a fundraising marathon next week. Till then, this has been Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. I'll be back again next week. And till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of the sun. Understanding ISIS and the new global war on terror is emphatically something we must do. It is also the title of a new book by Phyllis Bennis, reliably judicious commentator, fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies, writer for the Middle East Report. Phyllis Bennis will discuss ISIS and this eerie war on terror on Tuesday, September 29th, 7.30 p.m. at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley. This KPFA benefit offers wheelchair access. The excellent Mitch Jezrich will host. Tickets available at brownpapertickets.com and at our blessed independent bookstores. More information on kpfa.org for September 29th. Phyllis Bennis.